This podcast is generously supported by the Jesus Bible NIV edition. With exclusive articles from Louis Giglio, John Piper, and Randy Alcorn, the Jesus Bible lifts Jesus up as the lead story of the Bible. It is available as a full study Bible, as well as available as individual Bible journals. Find out more at www.thejesusbible.com. Want to learn how to interpret and teach the entire Bible in a way that is Christ-centered and clear? Learn with us here on the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. of God's Word, please turn me to the book of Judges. We'll be in Judges chapter 13. We look at the story of Samson and continue our series. I know some of y'all made comments about me and my twin brother sounding the same, and apparently people made comments about me, about him being thinner than I was, which simply means he's not as strong as I am. But I'll try not to take it too personally. Uh, excited to be back in the pulpit preaching and excited about this sermon series and looking at, at heroes. We're in that time of the year where the summer blockbusters are beginning to come out. And in the story of Samson, that would make for a great uh, summer blockbuster if, if, some, if Hollywood would take it and, and be faithful to the story. I mean, you have in this story everything that particularly young boys grow up. There's a reason we grow up liking Samson. You have, uh, you have feats of strength, you have power, you have violence, and you have victory over one's oppressors. It would make for quite a story, and it's a true story. And yet in the text, it's very interesting because the hero of the text, Samson, he is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, what some commentators call the hall of faith. And yet in Samson, we have somebody who is deeply flawed, who's impulsive, who struggles with all kinds of sins, particularly we'll see in the text, he struggles with sexual sin. It is is his undoing in many ways. And so we do have an incredible story in front of us, but I do want to pray for God's help because Jonathan made an allusion to this a little bit last week with the story of Noah, but particularly for those of us that have grown up in the church, it's hard for us to see this with fresh eyes of faith. And I want to pray that we would see it with fresh eyes of faith, that we would understand what is going on with Samson. But more importantly than that, we would understand why this is written down for us and to whom is this showing us? Who, who's this trying to point us to, to a greater champion and deliverer who takes on the enemies in our life that seek to, to enslave us, that seek to destroy us? And so, now read the text and then pray for God's help. We'll start in chapter 13 and verse 1. Paul tells the church in Corinth that these things are written down for us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. And so let's see what is written down for us. The author of Judges writes this as he's moved by the Spirit. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Let's pray. Father, now as we turn to your word, I do pray for help. Father, I pray that you would help me to be faithful to your word for the good of your people. Father, I pray that particularly as we look 
at the life of Samson, Father, that we would that we would love the Lord Jesus to whom this text points. Father, I pray that, that we would love him more than anything this world could give us or anything this world could take away from us. Father, we do pray. I, I think of the, of the text when the Greeks come to the disciples and say, may we see Jesus. Father, as we look at the Old Testament, may we see Christ. And Father, by seeing him, may we be made more like him. So Father, help us now to be sanctified in the truth. Indeed, Father, your word is truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So growing up, I would admit that Samson was probably my favorite biblical character. I mean, what young boy would not like the story of Samson? In many ways, Samson was a U, you know, UFC fighter before there was UFC. Or maybe more accurately, he was a gladiator before there were gladiators. And growing up, I grew up a WWF wrestling fan. Confession is good for the soul. And, you know, in WWF, they always pit a champion against another champion, and you have, you know, obviously the, the, the best wrestlers pitted against one another. But growing up in a Christian household and understanding the stories of the Old Testament, I always had this thought in my mind, what would it have been like if Samson had come along a few years later and him and Goliath could have gone at it in hand-to-hand combat? Kind of things that boys that grow up in the church think about. Several years ago, I was listening to a sermon in which the pastor was talking about the upcoming Christmas season and these, these toy makers who are making these little Bible action figures like Samson and like David and like Goliath. And they were expected to be uh, hot sellers that Christmas season with Jesus being the runaway bestseller. And in this article that he's talking about, the reporter asked the, the makers of the toy this question. He says, what do you do? What would you do if the child pits a Spider-Man figurine against Jesus in a showdown? Which again, those of us who've grown up as little boys, it's the kind of thing that we do. The maker of the toys simply said this, I would hope in that case, he said, I would hope that the parents would step in to keep Jesus in a safe place. To which the pastor said, the world emperor of Revelation 19, the sovereign of all the universe has to be protected by parents from leftover He-Man action figures in a child's playroom. But think about the irony of that statement. I'm afraid for those of us that have grown up in the church, we've grown up watching the Hanna-Barbera cartoons and we've watched, uh, looked at the flannel graph shown at Vacation Bible School. Now there's these new cartoons out where they compare biblical characters to vegetables. Not sure why they think kids are gonna like vegetable cartoons. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with teaching the story through cartoon and other things, but I do think it is possible if we see it through that grid to, to move us away from the reality of what is taking place in this story like Samson, this, this true story that is taking place. I mean, we do not have to look far into our world. We don't have to get up and turn on the news apps on our phone to see we do not live in a cartoon and we do not live in a world of figurines. Instead, we live in one where there are real enemies that seek to enslave us, that seek to destroy us. We have internal enemies. These are enemies that we bring upon ourselves, our own sinful appetites, like lust and greed and anger and obsession with the approval of others. These are the sort of things that, that begin as small sinful appetites in our, in our lives and they begin to grow. Proverbs talks about sin like this. It says that sin is uh, a path that leads us to destruction. There's a way that seems right to a man that leads us to destruction. We not only have internal enemies, we have external enemies that come about because of the the curse of the fall, because we live in a fallen world. That's, that's enemies that, that we do not bring upon ourselves. They're just, they're just the reality of being in a fallen world. That's, that's storms and that's floods and that's earthquakes and that's tsunamis and that's things like cancer and on and on and on. 
And I'm afraid for us this morning, if we view biblical truth through the lens of a cartoon, we will miss that there is real warfare, there is real struggle, there are real enemies that seek to destroy us, but there is also a real champion that God has provided to defeat those enemies on our behalf. Both those enemies that we would bring upon ourselves and also those enemies that are a part of being in a fallen world. Which is why my main idea this morning is simply this, God provides a champion who delivers his people from their enemies. God provides a champion who delivers his people from their enemies. Here's the context of the book of Judges. So the conquest has happened. They have been delivered from Egypt. Joshua has taken the promised land, but it is in the time before the monarchy is set up, and it is a dark time for Israel. Israel is constantly under siege from foreign armies, from from enemy armies like the Philistines here in chapter 13, who will rise up and oppress them and occupy the land promised to them. And there's this cycle that goes on in in the book of Judges where Israel will sin greatly, so God gives them over to the hands of their enemies. They will cry out for God. God will raise up a judge who delivers them. And then once again, they will be happy in the land. And because of that, they get comfortable. They move back again into great sin. God gives them over to the hand of their enemies. They cry out for deliverance. God provides us a judge and delivers them. And the cycle happens all over again as they continually fall into the hand of pagan oppressors. Judges 17.6 captures this dark time. It says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The author of Judges is trying to help the people of Israel see, and he's trying to help us see as well. We need something more than a temporary judge who provides temporary relief. Instead, we need an eternal king who establishes an eternal kingdom and eternal victory over our enemies. And the good news is that king is on the way. Here, the cycle has gotten so bad that they are now given over again to their worst enemies, that being the people of the Philistines. You see that in in verse one, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. They're in the promised land, but they're not walking in the ways that God would have them. Instead, they're doing what is right in their own eyes instead of doing what is right in the Lord's eyes. They're following their own desires. And so they again fall into the hands of their enemies. And what they miss, and here's what the worst thing about this is, over and over and over again, they're so concerned about their their, their physical state And they're missing the fact that their spiritual slavery is what is leading to their physical slavery. Their their spiritual sin is leading to their being physically bound or physically oppressed by the enemies around them. And the same is true for us as well. Our spiritual state, our, our own doing what is right in our own eyes is the sort of thing that leads us to destruction. And what's scary here, this is the final judge in the in the book of Judges. What's scary here is now that it has gotten so bad. They've become so comfortable with being occupied by the enemy. This time, they don't even cry out for deliverance. And it's a picture of our sin as well. When we begin to become so comfortable with our sin that it no longer upsets us, it is a sign of the judgment of God. It is a sign that we are leading ourselves down a path of destruction. And yet here in the Lord's kindness, he still promises that he is going to provide for them a spirit-filled champion, a spirit-filled leader who is going to deliver them from this enemy oppression, who's gonna deliver them out of the hands of the Philistines. And that's what we see first in the text. The champion will have a miraculous birth. I read that text for you just a second ago. In the midst of Israel's rebellion, the spirit zeroes in on a barren couple and God's grace will be shown towards the Israelites and made evident by a miraculous pronouncement of a hero who is to save his people. And that should sound familiar. Samson is to be set apart. He's to be a Nazarite, which means he is not to cut his hair. This will be a sign of 
his God-given power. He's not to, to drink alcohol, and he's not to touch anything that is dead. This, is, this vow is a sign of him being set apart for the work that he is going to have to deliver the people from the Philistines. And we see that the Lord is with him. Verse 24 in chapter 13 says, the woman bore a son and called him uh, Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The Lord is, is with him. The, the spirit of God is, is upon Samson. And we need to, it means we need to understand the Holy Spirit. And I think particularly in Baptist circles and others, the Holy Spirit can be misunderstood. The Holy Spirit is not a Christian mascot. Just bringing Christian joy to everybody. In this text, in the, in the Samson narrative, and, and really often in the Old Testament, whenever the Spirit shows up, it actually means somebody's about to get hurt. Because the Spirit is given to help us wage war on our internal enemies. To help us to not be comfortable with our sin. The Spirit indeed is, shows up in our lives so that we will be completely uncomfortable with the things that would lead us to destruction. And when the Spirit shows up here, it's in order to make war on the enemies, and the same is true of our own life. Samson here is a judge who is a spirit-empowered judge who has victory over the enemies of God. We see that in verse 5 and 6 and in chapter 15 as well, that he has power over the oppressors, power over the Philistines. And so we see that when the Spirit shows up in his life, there are some incredible feats of strength that happen. And every time I say feats of strength, I think of Seinfeld and Festivus. I hope somebody else in here thinks of that as well. But he does some incredible things in the text, 14, 5, and 6. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Wow, so what's going on here? It's interesting to me. What stands out to me the most is the author of this text thinks that Israelites are just so familiar with what it's like to tear up a baby goat that they understand what's going on here in the text. So what in the world's going on in Israel that that seems like a common thing? But the spirit rushes upon him, and because of that, something incredible happens. But more than that, this is not just to kind of show you, these, these feats of strength are not to just show, hey, look how powerful Samson is. They're to show that he is the one who is anointed by God to take on the enemies. And we see that in 14, 19, and 20. We see that in chapter 15 and verses 4 through 15. And just for time's sake, I'm going to kind of tell you what takes place in those texts, but I would encourage you to go back and read it this week. He's going to, he's going to be led astray, and we'll talk more about this in a minute. He's going to be led astray by a Philistine woman. He wants to marry someone that he's not supposed to marry because she worships a false god. And he ends up getting tricked to the point that they give his wife, his to-be wife, to his best man. And because of that, the Spirit comes upon him and he kills 30 of the Philistines. This podcast is generously sponsored by the Pillar Network. The Pillar Network is a community of SBC and International Baptist churches that are doctrinally aligned, missionally driven, and committed to equipping, planting, and revitalizing churches together. If you're a pastor of an established church and you're desiring to lead your congregation to plant churches, but you're not sure how to get started, Pillar could be a great resource for you. Reach out to them today at thepillarnetwork.com, thepillarnetwork.com. Then they do, because of this, they burn his wife and kill her. So he then sets these foxes. He ties the tails of these foxes together with a, with a torch on them, and he releases them in a Philistine field, and it burns the field to the ground. And then probably the, the most important story that happens with Samson's feats of strength is, is simply he is, 
he's actually taken by his own brothers. The tribe of Judah actually takes him, binds him, and hands him over to the Philistines. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. And when they do, when he's finally in the presence of the Philistines, he breaks off the bindings and he takes the, the, the jawbone of a donkey and he strikes down a thousand Philistines who are trying to kill him with this, with this jawbone. What's sad in the text is that the brothers of Israel take the very one who is to deliver them from their enemies and they betray him and give him over to the, to the pagan oppressors. They have become so comfortable with this enemy occupation that they want to hand over the very person who's supposed to deliver them to the people he's supposed to deliver them from. It's gotten so bad that they don't even realize they're handing over the very one that they need. And sadly, not only is the, are the people of Israel sinful, Samson himself, again, is deeply flawed. He is, he is, yes, the hero who delivers his people, but we will see in the text because of his own sin and his own out-of-control sinful appetites, he needs to be delivered himself. So the next point of the text is this. The champion, like all humanity, falls through self-reliance and giving in to sinful appetites. He falls like all humanity through self-reliance and giving in to sinful appetites. And this is going to be verses uh, 15 through 21 in chapter 16. We're going to kind of slow down and, and look at these verses most clearly. But we see Samson here is the hero that is sent to save his people, but there are chinks in the armor. There are things that are showing he, he indeed is leading himself. His, he's leading down a path that's going to lead to his own destruction. Again, they were not to intermarry because the, the Philistines worshiped pagan gods, a pagan god named Dagon. But sadly, what is true of Israel, that they've been running after these false gods, is true of their champion. He's running after these foreign women. He's giving in to his sinful appetites. He is doing what is right in his own eyes. In fact, it says in chapter 14, when he goes to his parents and asks for this Philistine woman to be his wife, he simply says this about her, she is right in my eyes. Samson is, there should be red flags going off the entire time you're reading the Samson story. He's, he's marrying pagan women. He's failing in his vow not to drink. He's over and over again touched dead things. And we just talked about him touching the jawbone of a donkey. Samson, as the representative hero of the people, is a sad you know, picture of their actual physical and spiritual state. He was supposed to be set apart at birth, and yet he is so comfortable with the enemy occupying the land, he wants to marry their women. This is evidence to us that he is not, and he will not, and he cannot be the final deliverer that God's people need, because he himself will give in to egregious sin of self-reliance and giving in to his own sinful appetites. Verse 15 shows us what's going on here. It says this, and she's talking about Delilah, said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. This is the worst nagging in the world because he wants to die because of it. He told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and they brought money in their hands. They had told her if she delivered Samson over, they would give her pieces of silver to betray Israel's champion. That's to be familiar. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man who had shaved his seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, 
I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But listen to these sad words. He did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Here's what's going on here. Sadly, Samson does not see Delilah as a threat. No, he should have. And he begins, I think, to rely on his own strength. Three times in the text, she has said, how does your power come to you? He has told her some kind of scheme about how she could get rid of his power. She actually does it. He's able to, to wake up and to throw off the Philistines and be just fine. And yet this fourth time, he actually does tell her what will make him lose his power. And so the question must be, is Samson just a dummy? Does he not know that she's followed this pattern? She's going to do this as well. No, I think what's going on in the text is he rejects his Nazarite vow of not having his hair cut. I think what's going on in the text is that Samson has begun to believe his strength is his own and his strength does not come from God. I actually think he believes there's nothing Delilah can do to me to take away my strength. I will always be able to deliver myself. His hair is not magical. His hair was a sign. This vow was a sign that his power came from above, but he is beginning to think his power rests in him. He says that in the text. He says, I'm going to go out and free myself just like I've done every other time. And yet, sadly, he does not realize that the Lord has left him. And there's a lot we can learn about our own sin as we look at this. This is the height of pride and arrogance. Essentially, Samson, by breaking this vow, is saying to his creator, he is saying to his maker, I am fine on my own. I do not need you. This is the pinnacle of human sin, is it not? This, this pride, this, this anti-gospel message, I do not need your help, I can do this all on my own. And I'm telling you, that is the kind of attitude that will be judged by God. Sadly, now, the most popular non-religious song that's sung at funerals is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. I mean, think about the rebellion that you will get ready to face your maker by telling him, I did it my way. And yet in that, we see the deepness and the pervasiveness of human sin. That's what human sin is. I, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. And yet the Bible, and, and this narrative in particular, is screaming at us, you cannot do this on your own. You cannot rely on yourself. And you absolutely need somebody else to help you. Israel and we ourselves need to see, we don't need someone who does what is right in his own eyes. We need someone to be our champion who does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Over and over again, he fails, particularly again, as it comes to these foreign women. And there's much for us to learn here. So the enemies started to, to recognize what is it in Samson that will easily lead him on a path to destruction. So that's why they go to Delilah. And the same is true for us. The power, Satan himself, He's starting to notice the things in your heart that catch your eye. He's starting to notice the things in your life that cause your heart to flutter. He's starting to notice in the things that, that you just, just start to feel a little bit more warm to. And what he's doing is he is slowly leading you on a path to destruction. And in the fullness of time, he will offer these things to you. All along the way, Samson, when he's breaking these vows, when he's pursuing these Philistine women, and I hope most of you will understand the, the reference here. What, what he should have been hearing in the back of his mind as he's doing all of these things, he, sh he should have heard the Jaws theme music. Because what is going on in these moments is 
The enemy is just preparing him. There is blood in the water now for him to be taken down. And the same is true for us. So it is with us. You know, the, the man that has an affair doesn't just wake up one day and have an affair. Slowly over time, he begins to make little small decisions that lead to greater decisions. And the same is true with any sins that we might struggle with. We won't need to ask ourselves this morning, what are the small things that are beginning to creep into our lives that are stirring our sinful appetites? What are the sins in our lives that are getting easier? And when we think about what those are, we should hear the Jaws theme music. How is the enemy fattening you up for your own self-destruction? Just one more glance here, just one more little text message here, just one more little lie here, just one little, you know, adjustment on this form so that I'll make more money this year. Just one more little just concern about what the world thinks about us. Just one more little concern about how we're accepted in the world, how we're viewed on social media, and on and on and on. What are the things in our life that are leading us on a path to destruction? If you're in this room, I just want to say this as clearly as I can. As I've studied this text, several times, but even more in the last week or so. When there are things in your, when there is sin in your life that you are comfortable with, it is a sign of God's judgment. Paul tells the church at Rome that when you begin to be comfortable with your sin, it's because God is giving you over to what you really want. He's giving you over to what you actually are. Samson is brought to his knees by this. This is why the Puritans remind us over and over again in their writings that we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. We need the word of God, we need the spirit of God, and we need the people of God to make us incredibly uncomfortable with our own sin. We need, we need the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God to help us make war on our flesh and those things that would lead us down this path. Due to his self-reliance and due to his sin, he is taken captive by these Gentile rulers. And he is, he is made to be a slave. He's He's grounding at the mill. He's had his eyes taken out. He's going to be made fun of here in a moment. And yet, thankfully, the final point, God does not leave, it, leave the story here. The final point, God delivers his people through the death of his champion. We see this in verses 22 through 31. I love the grace of God in verse 22. If you just notice it there, I love the way it says this, but the hair of his head began to grow again. Text continues, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. Here in the text, the hero is, is humiliated. A false god named Dagon is worshipped. In fact, this is actually a pagan worship service. They, they are singing praises and speaking praises to Dagon. And they say, when all of this is going on, let's bring out Samson. They've, they've, already, they've already beaten him. They've already knocked his eyes out. They've humiliated him. But now let's make a spectacle of him during this worship service. It seems in the text that Dagon has won, that, the Israel, that Israel's God, Yahweh, has lost, and yet... We see in the text, Samson is put between two pillars. And now we will see the faith of Samson talked about in Hebrews 11 on display. Verse 26, Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. 
Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it so that the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. In the text, we, we see this faith that we are supposed to emulate in Samson. God has allowed now, because of his faith, God has now allowed the champion to bring on a great defeat of their enemies. Samson cries out to God. God hears him. God delivers him through this, this mighty push on the pillars. The whole thing comes crashing down on the enemies of God. And it says that here, Samson kills more in his death than he ever killed in his life. They have been mocking him, ridiculing him. And yet God gives him the final word. I mean, what a rough ending for a worship service that would be. Samson is made strong through weakness. This time he begs God for God's grace instead of presuming upon it. And God shows up with abundant grace for his champion. So the question has to be, how do we apply a, a story, how do we apply a text like this to our lives? I mean, does it mean that if I'm being ridiculed and humiliated, I pick up a jawbone and go to work on those people? No, it certainly doesn't mean that. No, most of the time when we come to the Old Testament, our, our initial inclination is to identify with the hero in the story, but our initial incl- inclination should be identify with the Israelites in the story. In this text, we identify with the Israelites first and foremost because we need a hero who will come to defeat our enemies on our behalf. And the way he will do this for us is we actually put our faith in him to take care of our enemies because we cannot take care of our own enemies. Samson here is not the final hero because He himself needs deliverance, but he does point us forward to the hero that we do need. And you see, there will be another whose birth will be miraculously foretold by an angel. There will be another who is spirit anointed in order to deliver God's people from from their enemies. There is another who will be betrayed and rejected by his own brothers and given over to Gentile oppressors because they our country and at ease. They are comfortable and at ease with foreign oppressors. There will be another who is betrayed for silver. Another who is seized, who is mocked, who is humiliated, who is made sport of by these Gentile oppressors. There will be another champion who seems to be forsaken by God. And there will be another whose victory would crush the heads of his enemies. And brothers and sisters, there will be another who will be victorious over our enemies in his death. And yet of this one, Samson cannot fully appropriate him. He is no rebel. He never gives in to his sinful appetites. In fact, the scriptures will tell us about him that he is tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And which is why he can be a better deliverer. He can be the final deliverer and that His name is Jesus of Nazareth, who has put the powers to flight, who has crushed the heads of our enemies, who has defeated the very things that that we cannot defeat on our own, particularly those things that enslave us, our sin, and those things that have final captivity over us, death itself. 
It's interesting here in the text, this is why we know Samson is not the final deliverer. It says in verse 31, his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. In the text, Samson dies and then he rests with his fathers, but Jesus of Nazareth rested with his fathers, but for three days only. He had gained final victory over death itself. And he gives us not just an example to follow when it comes to sin, he gives us power to fight sin and he gives us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we can make war on our sin. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I pray that you will see the only way you can defeat your biggest enemy, that being sin and that being the consequence of death is you must turn to and be found in Jesus. You must stop doing what is right in your own eyes and cry out for repentance, turn to him in faith and trust. And if you will do that, he will deliver you. And brothers and sisters, I pray that we will continually turn to this king, that we will see him as more precious than the things that our appetites tell us are precious. I pray that we will rely on his spirit to make war with our flesh. I pray that we will trust that he indeed has the power he says he has, even if the doctor comes in the room and tells us it's cancer. Brothers and sisters, if we can trust him to take us to heaven when we die, we can trust him with the things we face every single day. And you see, the truth is, Samson's power in this text is puny compared to Jesus of Nazareth. The question for me, for me this morning, the question for us this morning is, do we trust he will deliver us from death? Do we trust he will deliver us from enemies in this life? Do we trust that he will silence the lies of the accuser? Do we, do we trust that in Christ Jesus, it truly is able to be said, there is no condemnation for those who are found in him. Do we really trust what is said in the Great Commission, that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to this one? Or are we simply playing with Jesus' action figures? Thank you for listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources. Christ-Centered and Clear.